this week's parsha is the first parsha in the Torah. It's called Bereshis. That's the Hebrew word is Bereshis. Uh, and that means in the beginning, because that's indeed where it starts off. It starts off in the beginning of God's creating of heaven and earth. And that's indeed what the first section of, of the Torah and of this parsha talks about creation. Now what's very interesting, just from the get-go, is that it, the first thing it tells us about the creation of the heavens, and that's sort of the last we hear of the heavens, and this is, I think, really zones us in of what the focus of the entire book is. The book starts off with the heavens. There's something spiritual, something beyond us, something that's not really relevant to us. But really, it's a book about us. It's about earth, and more specifically, once we meet man, in, a, in like 20 or some odd verses, we meet man, we don't talk about anything else. Not the animals, not, not the grasses, not the sun and the moon, none of that. And I think that'll clarify a lot of the problems that people have with the Genesis narrative. We really don't have the anthropological detail that we would like, and the truth is, is that's, not, that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is a story about man and man's challenges, and the Torah makes it very clear from the get-go that all this is just kind of to set the arena for man. So the Torah starts off creating a heaven and earth, the seven days of creation. So the first day we have the creation of matter and light and darkness. Interestingly, all the commentaries stress this point that matter was created on day one and all the matter that was refashioned on the rest of the week was just taking the extant matter, the existing matter, and create and forming it into other things. Uh, day two, we have the heavens, the upper waters, the lower waters, and the firmament. Uh, day three, we meet the, the land and the sea and trees, vegetation, and greenery. Four is the sun, the moon, and the cosmos. Uh, five, we have the fish, the birds, and the reptiles. And day six, of course, we have the land animals, the more developed animals, and, of course, man. And we also have the whole story of man before the eviction from the Garden of Eden. Now, day seven, day seven is, of course, the day of Shabbat. It's a day where God ceases to create, and God blesses the the seventh day, and God sanctifies the seventh day as well. And once it tells the broad strokes of creation, it gets into the more granular detail of day six. So it tells about Adam and how Adam was created and what was created from, where he was placed, uh, and, and of course what, what his challenge was. So we're told, very famous story, Adam is placed on the east of this Garden of Eden. It's a garden with lots of trees, all these different kinds of trees, these magical trees that you can eat the bark, we're told. Uh, and of course these two central trees in the middle, the tree of life, Eitzachayim, and the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and the Almighty tells them, eat whatever tree you want, San, one. Don't eat from the tree of, uh, of knowledge, good and evil, because you do that and things are going to go awry. And boy, did they go awry. It's not that, you know, that's setting the stage, and we're told that Adam names all the animals. Now, critically, when the Torah tells us something about, uh, about an animal being named, it's not just telling us that it was an arbitrary name. It, it was... It was Adam was someone who was able to tap into the essence of every animal and give it its appropriate name. And Adam is encountering all the animals and taking care of everyone, but he, of course, has no spouse. And we get the famous verse, uh, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a, a, a mate. And 
the Almighty makes the Almighty makes Adam fall asleep, and he takes one of his ribs, and he builds it to eat. Out of out of that, he builds Eve. And Adam wakes up from his slumber, and he's so delighted, and he sees Eve, and he says, Oh, this time, this is a bone for my bone, flesh for my flesh. This woman I'll call Eve. And he's so excited, and Torah tells us, everyone should leave his father and mother, cleave to the wife, and become one flesh. And that seems to be the, uh, the peak of, of their existence. Uh, Adam and Eve are together, they're naked, we're told, and unashamed, and that's going to change. And we meet the next critical character, and that is the wily serpent, who convinces Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge. She eats from the tree of knowledge, she gives to her husband to eat from the tree of knowledge. Um, right away they recognize that they're naked, so that's an interesting motif. They were, they were naked prior, they didn't realize, didn't, didn't bother them at all, just like when your hands or face are, is exposed, it doesn't bother you. And the first thing that happens is they recognize their nakedness, and they try to cover themselves up, and the Almighty says, what happened? Did you eat from the tree? And they all get cursed, all three perpetrators in this episode, the serpent, the uh, man, and the woman. They're expelled from the Garden of Eden. And then, really, we meet Adam was just, you know, a human. You know, Adam, so to speak, pre-sin, the primordial Adam is this incredibly gifted and intelligent entity. He's able to name all the animals and all the exploits that were told about in the Talmud, the Midrash. And then he gets kicked out, he gets demoted, and he's just one of us. He's a human uh, in the same physiological makeup that we have. And then we're told... Uh, the, the, the next phase of the Parsha, primarily he's going to deal with Adam's children. Uh, Adam has two children, Cain and Abel. They get into a scuffle over an offering, and there's a, a horrible incident of fratricide. Cain gives an offering, it's rejected. Abel gives an offering, it's accepted. Cain, of course, is, is envious, and he murders his brother. The Almighty says, I'm going to punish you, but I'm not going to fully punish you. You'll, I'll give you some respite, some time. I'll shield you temporarily from harm. And the story goes on to say how several generations later, his great-great-great-great-great-grandchild, Lamech, accidentally kills him. And um, we're told about Adam and Eve's second, third son, Seth. And the story goes on to give the genealogy from Adam all the way to Noah. Clearly, no one makes the argument that we're given a cohesive and comprehensive and exhaustive detailing of creation in the 34 sentences that we're told about it. I don't think anyone makes that claim. And as such, I think a, a fair question that we can ask is, okay, well, so if the Almighty is just telling us that he created the world, that could have been done in one sentence. They migrated everything. Let's move on to Adam. So we have this like hybrid model where, on one hand, we're told somewhat detail. We're told like a structure and a framework. On the other hand, we're not told enough, or it doesn't seem like it's enough. It seems like it's written in very, very broad, broad terminology. And so, so what's the what? What are we supposed to do when we encounter it? You know, are we supposed to say, "Oh, this is supposed to teach us"? You know, the, 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 the backstory of the origin of species, is that really what it is? You know, what's the lesson uh, for us? So I think there's a legitimate question. I found something very interesting in the Mishnah. The Mishnah tells us that there's ten utterances 
that the Almighty used to create the world. Ba'asara ma'amarot, the world was created. Now, what does it mean, ten utterances? So if you actually count in these 34 verses of Genesis, the Almighty said, the Almighty said, the Almighty said, it said ten times. So ten times the Almighty said something, and something happened. Says the, says the, says the Mishnah. Why did the Almighty use ten utterances to create the world? The Almighty could have easily said, create the world with a single utterance. Which is almost our question. It seems like we're given God's perspective. This is how God created the world, right? For us, there's a lot of details. You know, but God just said ten utterances and created the world. Says, says, says the Talmud, wait a minute. It, the Almighty could have just as easily created the world with one utterance. So why did the Almighty use ten utterances? It's to exact punishment from the wicked who destroy the world that was created with ten utterances and to give reward to the righteous that they uphold the world that was created with ten utterances. Indeed, says the Mishnah. The Almighty only needed one utterance to create the world. The Almighty reveals His will, the world is created, we're good. Why is there so much more detail? That is to augment the world, to make the world more important. The Almighty, so to speak, giving more attention to the world and spending more time that's not needed only to create artificially, so to speak, not for creation's sake itself, but for us. For us to realize that the Almighty gave what utterance? And two and three and four and ten. All that to make the world uh, more valuable. It's, it's about us. These 34 verses is about us, to tell us. The Almighty spent a long time in the world, so to speak, of course, not time, but the Almighty utilized ten utterances when he only needed one. And all that is to tell us is that our role in this world is ever more important. We are the great unknown in this world. We're the variable. Because we're the ones who have free will. And that's, we can become tzaddikim, we become righteous, we can become wicked, we can become rishayim. That's, that's our hands. That's, that's not God's hands. That's, that's in our hands. Thus, the Torah gives us this whole introduction, 34 verses, to the Torah, because the Torah is a book for us, like we mentioned already prior. The Torah is a book for us. And it's a book for us to help us in our conflict that we're going to be introduced very clearly once we meet Adam, we're going to see how conflicted he is, and to tell us what are the stakes. The Almighty is amplifying the world, making it ten utterances, making it ever more important to up the ante. So indeed, this is not you know, about what God needed. God needed ten utterances. No, God could have done, could have done with one utterance, clearly. God reveals his will. That's enough. The Almighty is going through ten utterances for us, to tell us the world and us, the humans, and our actions matter ever more because the Almighty gave us ten utterances. I think this is, this is, to me, like this changes the whole introduction to the Torah. The beginning of the Torah is setting the groundwork for our life, and that is, your life really, really matters. It doesn't matter, like, if it was one utterance, it would matter, yes, of course, but it matters ever more so because of the extra utterances just to augment the purpose in the world. Now, there's a theme going throughout the beginning of Genesis where the Almighty creates something and says, oh, this is good. The Almighty creates the, you know, the, the light and it's good, and the trees and it's good, etc., etc. But if you actually notice, there's a few days and a few creations that the Almighty does not add 
uh, the honorific of good to. So it's very interesting. Why would some days be labeled as good and some days not be labeled as good? So, for example, Monday, God said, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters, separate between the water and water. God, so God made the firmament and separated between the waters which were beneath the firmament and the waters which were above the firmament. And, so, and it was so. God called the firmament in heaven. There was evening, there was morning, a second day. We're told in these few verses about what God created. Of course, it's not an exhaustive detailing, like we've mentioned, or at least not an exhaustive detailing in a way that we understand. But why does it not mention that it was good? And in fact, if you look at Tuesday, on Tuesday, it mentions twice that it was good. So, so what's, what's the idea behind that? So I found something very interesting. I found a Talmud and I found a Rashi. And they seem to be conflicting. So Rashi says, he says, how come it doesn't say it was good on Monday, on day two? Because Monday was incomplete. God started with the waters, didn't finish it quite until Tuesday, and we don't say it's good unless it's complete. That's what Rashi says. Therefore, when God finishes the waters on Tuesday, he gives the it's good label that was really for Monday's work that was left over to Tuesday. And then the Tuesday's work itself got its own, it was good because it was completed. That's what Rashi says. Very interesting idea that to say something's good, but if it's not complete, it's not quite good. But I found the Talmud. And the Talmud says, this is the book of Pesachim, which is talked about Pesach. On page 54, it said the reason why Monday, day two, was not labeled as good is because on day two, purgatory, Gehenna, was created. That's what the Talmud says. That's, that's not a good thing. Okay, so let me ask you a question. The Talmud asked the question, why is there no it was good on Monday? Talmud answers, because Monday Gehenna was created. That's not a good thing, per se. Maybe in aggregate it is a good thing, but it's not a good thing for our perspective. Therefore, we don't say it was good. Comes along Rashi. Rashi says... The reason why it doesn't say it was due on Monday, day two, was because on day two it wasn't, the work wasn't completed. What's going on? The Talmud asks your question. Talmud gives a decent answer. Why does Rashi seem to come up with a new idea that it wasn't complete? So I had a theory. Just let me. I'll just throw this out there. What I think is going on over here, perhaps, is what is Gehenna? What is Gehenna? Gehenna is when someone doesn't finish their work here. Says Rashi. Right? Rashi's invoking the Talmud here. Rashi's saying, Rashi, of course, in the Talmud. The Talmud says that Gehenna was created on Monday, and that's not good. Says Rashi, it's not good. Monday's not good because the work wasn't completed. Well, isn't that what Gehenna is? I think what Rashi's actually telling us here is that, indeed, the same. The, the reason why Monday is not a good day because Monday is a day. Well, Monday is not a good day for, in our, in our, <laughs> for other reasons. <laughs> but the reason why day two here is not good because day two is a day of unfinished business. That could be either because the water work wasn't done, or because Gehenna is a day is is a, is a venue is a locale for unfinished business. But that's not not a good thing. And I think those those two things align. Very nicely. Okay, so let, let's move on to day four. On day four, we, we, meet, we meet constellations. The sun and the moon and the stars. Now, if you look at 
the verses, you find two contradicting verses. This is verse, verse 16. This is verse 16. God created the two great luminaries, the two great me'orot, the two great lights, the greater luminary to dominate the day and the lesser luminary to dominate the night and the stars. This is referring to the sun and the moon and the stars. And it starts off by saying God created two great ones, and then says, well, one big one, one small one. So Talmud picks up on this. What's going on over here? Why are we told initially that there's two great lights, two great beacons, and then one of them is big and one of them is small. One of them is large, one of them is uh, less so. So Talmud says like this. This is an interesting idea from multiple vantage points. The Umadi initially created two great luminaries, and they were identical. And then the moon came along and says, wait a minute, you can't really have two kings utilize the same crown, which is a way of saying, we can't both be great. So I says, oh, you're right. So you make yourself smaller and weaker. That's what the Talmud says. Now, what, well, the reason why this is interesting is because we don't think of the sun and the moon as being animate. Here we're told that the moon is saying things to God. What does that mean? I think that's a broad question. And I think the answer broadly is that everything that is in, exists in a physical world exists also in a spiritual world. This is a general theme, certainly of Genesis, but throughout the Torah. So, that, so this is, shouldn't be surprising. With that perspective, we're not talking about like you know, the moon, the man of the moon actually talking. We're, we're referring to the, the, the idea behind, the spiritual idea behind the moon made a protest. It says, wait a minute, we can't have two kings. Of course, perhaps what they were interested in, what she was interested in, what the moon was interested in you know, being the only king, but God says, oh, you, you have a problem with existing, coexisting with your rival? Okay, that's, not, you know, that's misaligned. Okay, you could limit yourself and make yourself smaller. So that we, we start off with two great luminaries, then we have one great one and one more minor one. But to me, I think what this is perhaps a lesson for us. So the Almighty is sort of speak, punishing the moon for, for selfishness. Now what's interesting is that we know that the sun is roughly 27,000 times the mass of the moon. And indeed, it's, it's significant. It's, it's, it seems like from this Talmud that they were both once the same size, and this, perhaps even the same power, and then the moon was drastically reduced in size and influence. Yet, to us humans looking from Earth, they actually look to us to be exactly the same in size, which is very, very striking. It's almost as if, you know, if you took like a granule you know, a granule of, of sand and a, and a basketball, and you position them precisely in a way that they look exactly the same size, it seems like the Almighty is here compensating in a way for the moon. To me, this is a striking idea. Yes, you know, they were both the same size. One of them is reduced, but to us, we don't notice that at all. It's almost as if, I think this is, I think one way to go with it, perhaps there's other ways to go with this as well. The lesson is, is that you want to punish someone. Fine, they deserve punishment. But no one else needs to know. Us, the humans, that really matter? We, to us, we're like, if you, if, you know, if we don't know any better, 
I'm sure for generations, people probably thought that, unless they had the Torah. They would say, wait a minute, the sun and the moon, they're exactly the same size, because that's what they looked like in our, in, in our sky. Now we know that there's a huge, huge difference in size and influence and power between the two, but to the uninitiated, they're identical. So I think one, like one way to look at this is that, yeah, yeah, the punishment is deserved, but there's no need to express their shame to everyone. Of course, on day six, on Friday, we meet Adam. Now, why was Adam created on Friday? This is very interesting. Adam could have been created maybe on day one or, or on day two, or certainly on day five, all the animals being created or at least initially begin, you know, they sit, it seems like it's the last, the very last thing that the Almighty is creating is Adam. Why? So the Talmud asks the question, why was man created last? And it gives us four answers. This is the Talmud in Sanhedrin. Number one, the reason why Adam's created was last, so people should not say that man helped God in creating the world. Had man been there prior, there would have been room for heretics to say, well, man helped God in creating all the animals. Some, you know, helping God to make levees so that the, uh, so that the, uh, the oceans and the seas and, and the land are separate. I don't know. What, there's could a, lot of things, a lot of things that people could have said. Now that man wasn't around there, there's no argument. It's taking out the, the oxygen from the argument of the heritage. That's reason number one. Reason number two is that if man gets haughty and arrogant, you tell him even the mosquito was there before you. Number three, so that man should right away enter into a mitzvah, which is Shabbos. Man's created Friday, and right away should do mitzvahs. And lastly, so that he should enter the banquet of the king right away. Gives an example. Imagine you have a king who made, wants to make a big celebration. Uh, first, he builds the venue and he prepares it and decorates it and designs it, and afterwards, he invites the guests. The idea being is that man is the central, the central idea of creation. Everything else is there to service us. And therefore, because we are the feature presentation, we come in last. Once everything, once the arena is set, then it's time for us to come in and have the purpose. I think it's interesting. You know, Tom has a question. Why was man created last? It gives us four different answers. Any one of them is a good answer. You know, we, we shouldn't be haughty. We should have the humility to know that Mesita was there before us. We should do a mitzvah right away. We should come into everything's ready. There shouldn't be a notion of, of, of heresy. A lot of good reasons. But why, why do we need so, so many reasons? Isn't one of them enough? I was thinking perhaps... You know, right away at the beginning of creation of man, we're being told what the purpose is. Perhaps these four reasons really piece together what the world really is. So let's start with the last one, right? The Almighty creates man last, so that he should come in and it's ready. I think we could say, the lesson there is, is that the purpose of the world is man. Everything else is there to service us, it's the arena, and then it's our turn, and we are the focus. We're the variable, number one. Now, right away, we're put in here, we could do mitzvahs. Adam's placed on Friday, right before Shabbos, so he could observe Shabbos. The purpose of 
us being here means what, what is this variable? It's mitzvahs. Now, what, what, is, what does a mitzvah do to you? It connects you with God. It's an act that you're doing because God tells you to do it. What, is that, what does that rid you of internally? Your Yetzirah. Your evil inclination. And what does that give you? It gives you humility. Humility is about faith. Because if someone does not have humility, by definition, they're rejecting God. Because they're attributing their successes to themselves and ignoring God. If someone is a creation, they can have arrogance. They can have pride. Thus, by doing a mitzvah, we remember we have a creator, and we don't have arrogance and pride, and we remember that the gnat came before us, right? If the gnat came before us, what does it mean? God created the gnat, God created us, and why should, we, why should we feel any pride any more than a mosquito should feel pride? And lastly, the ultimate goal is to reduce heresy. We have inborn heresy. The Yetzirah we described, the Talmud describes, as a foreign God within us. So we are working against the clock, against our inborn innate status and default status of having heresy, and all the purpose of this life is to remove that heresy. Thus, indeed, from just from the fact that Adam's created on Friday, when he's created, that tells us everything about our purpose in life. Everything. We're the purpose to do mitzvahs, to thereby to gain humility and eradicate the inborn heresy from within. Interestingly, when man is created, once again, it doesn't say it was good. Now this seems to be a little bit more problematic. If man, which is the purpose of everything, which is the end goal of creation, is created, shouldn't that have... Uh, the byline of it was good when God created man. So I have, I, have, I have a theory here. Perhaps we can say that the only, like we said, the only variable that's in our hands, that's not in God's hands, is us. So everything that's not us, that's being created, well, that's part of the arena that we are placed in to make free will choices. Us, ourselves, whether we will be good, whether we will opt to lean more to our soul or to our body, to lean more to God or to the foreign God that we have within us, to lean more to the spiritual worlds or to the physical material, that's us. We can choose if we're going to be good or not good. And some people choose good and some people choose not good. We read in the Torah, later, much later on in the Torah, I place before you life and good and death and bad. We can still choose bad, thus to say that it's good, that humans are good? No. Some humans are good, some humans are not good. And I think this really hammers home the central theme that we're trying to build here, is that creation is about man, because man is the variable of, of, with free, free choice. And therefore, to say that it was good, that man is good? No. Not necessarily. Man can be good. And if man is good, by the way, then man is great. Because man has to opt into being good. You have to resist and counteract the forces that want you to be bad. But at the beginning of the story of man, we don't know if it's good. It's, it's, an, it's an answer question, and we have to answer that question. There is a Rashi, who quotes the Talmud, who quotes verses, 
all the way at the beginning where it talks about the light. The light of day one is a very mysterious idea because remember, we only meet the sun on day four. So on day one, we have light that doesn't have a source, a celestial source. So Rashi tells us, quotes the Talmud, that the Almighty saw that it was good and he put it away, he archived it for tzaddikim, for the future. Now, what does that mean? So we're told in the Talmud that the word good is a euphemism for a tzaddik, for righteousness. And I think when we said that man is not necessarily good, because man can be righteous, but can be wicked as well, what that means is that we can opt to become good, to become righteous, and thereby gain that great light that is really a reference to Olam Abba. I want to look a little bit about Adam and Eve and their relationship. Then Hashem God fashioned the side that he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So we have the creation of Eve. And the man said, quote, This time it is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. This shall be called woman, for from man she was taken. And then verse 24 is very interesting. Therefore, this is not Adam talking. This is the narrator talking, the Torah talking. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and that she become one flesh. It's very interesting that we're told a lesson about marriage in, on the heels of the first marriage of Adam and Eve, almost as if Adam and Eve represent a model marriage that we ought to emulate. Not only that, there's a blessing that we say under the chuppah in Jewish marriage ceremonies where we invoke Adam and Eve. We ask, the prayer is, we ask the Almighty to make this young couple as glad and as happy with each other as Adam and Eve were with each other in, in the Garden of Eden. The problem with that is that we actually read the rest of the story. <laughs> uh, we know that it didn't really end up to be so... Rosie, they sinned together, she caused them to sin, he blamed her. This seems like there's a lot of disappointment and acrimony uh, with each other. Why is this presented as being such a model marriage that we ought to emulate? There is something really remarkable about Adam and Eve that is very valuable for us. First of all, what does Adam say? This time it is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. What he is indicating is that Eve is essentially a part of him. Not something distinct and separate. And in fact, the PSA that comes right afterwards, therefore a man shall abandon his father or mother, cling to his wife, become one flesh, that does show a model, a process, wherein someone leaves something the way it was prior, and merges into some new identity now with their spouse. This is a very powerful lesson about marriage that's really relevant to us today. If someone really believed this time it's flesh from my flesh, bone from my bone about their spouse, it's unlikely they'll create as many emergency exits and prenups as we are accustomed to doing. We are very hesitant of commitment 
And therefore, you know, because we, 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 tr- we want to have it all. We want to have our own individual identity plus all the benefits of, that come with marriage. And the truth is, the Torah says you can't really have both. You have to choose. Do you want to stay with your own independent identity and not really change yourself fundamentally? Great. You're not going to have the benefits. Torah is advising us, therefore you should leave your father and mother, the identity that's been part and parcel of your life since, since you were a child, since you were a selfish little precocious baby, your father and mother, they had to deal with you. You have to leave that, clean to your life and create a new merged identity, and that's how to reap the benefits. The next section, which is really, I think, the, the bulk of the Parsha, is the story of the sin. So the broad stroke is, is that the Almighty tells Adam, all the trees are fair game, including, by the way, the tree of life. But there's one tree that's off limits, that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The serpent doesn't get Adam to eat, he gets Eve to eat, and Eve gives some to her husband as well. And after that, everything changes, they, re- they, recognize, that they're na- they recognize their nakedness and... They get punished, and they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden as a result. Now, what I want to ask is, A, what was the test? But more specifically, Adam's decision to fail, was that a mistake, just an egregious mistake that we're all suffering from right now, or was it a calculated decision? And of course, the deception of the serpent has to be examined because the Talmud tells us that the serpent actually did not lie. If you look at what the serpent tells Eve, the serpent tells Eve in verse 5 of chapter 3, first verse says, well, no, you're not going to die if you eat from the tree. God knows on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and bad. So he's tempting her into eating it. He says, well, God doesn't want any competitors. And therefore, he's telling you not to eat it, because if you eat it, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Now, is he lying or not? Typically, we think there's some sort of deception here. But what does he say? He says, you will be like God, knowing good and bad. Now, what happened? They ate from the tree. And verse 22 says, And God said, Behold, man has become like the unique one among us, like God, knowing good and bad. And now, lest he put forth his hand into the tree of life and eat and live forever. The exact description that the serpent outlined for Eve of what's going to happen if she eats from the tree is actually what happened. They became, we became like God, knowing good and evil. So, you know, so wh- why is he being punished or what's his role? It's interesting, the serpent actually says the truth and they knew what they were getting themselves into and they did it Willingly. So what, what is going on over here and how does it really fit into the whole story? So what's interesting here is that Adam became someone who knew good and evil. What does that mean? What does it mean to know something? It means to have some internal resonance with good on one hand. Adam, before he sinned, we're told he didn't have a Yetzirah. He didn't have any internal motivator towards sin, away from God. We live in a post-Adam world. We, we live in a world where the default status that we have as humans is 
ignorance of God. That's the default status. Why? Because we know evil as well. Internally, we know evil, and evil is actually stronger than the force of... It's not, it's not stronger per se. It's not stronger... Essentially stronger. It's just it has a stronger influence over us. It's stronger. We feel its influence much stronger. Now, that's a product of Adam's decision. But Adam beforehand didn't have that. It seems like Adam opted willingly into making a crazy fatal decision for mankind. We're told, this is the theme of the book, that man is the purpose. Man has free will, and therefore he can make choices, and therefore man is the variable that is meaningful and purposeful in the world. Now, why is it meaningful? Because we have free will, we can make choices. A free will choice that has only knowledge of good internally, knowledge of bad is external, that's a very low-level free will choice. If I were to incorporate the evil within, and I have two internal, I have an internal debate of good and evil, if that's where the venue of the conflict is, it's internal, well, then it's a much more difficult choice to make. What Adam seemingly did here is Adam upgraded his humanity. When I say by that, when I say, when I say that, I, I mean Adam upgraded his free will choices. His capacity to make choices is even greater. Thus, we're told he's like God. God made choices, we made choices. Man became in a weird way more like God by becoming more distant from God by having the eights are often within. Because now we have a greater free will spectrum of choices because we have both the good and evil as internal motivators. And that's indeed a very positive outgrowth of Adam's decision. So on one hand, it's very beneficial because we became more like God, like the serpent told us that we will become, and like God said afterwards that we did become. On the other hand, now we have a Yetzirah. We have internally a foreign God within us that is resisting God and repelling us from God. And that's very bad. So this is a gambit that Adam does. We, we think, we tend to think, at least it's commonly thought of that Adam made a very poor choice based upon very strange motivators. When you learn it with the commentaries and what they demonstrate from, from Adam's choice and his decision, we see is that this is a very, very calculated gambit that he did for all of us. He chose to change the world. When I say world, I mean the purpose of the world, which is free will, from being a very isolated and very narrow choice to being a very expansive, very broad choice for humanity. So I want to just uh, flesh out uh, this decision, this Adam's decision that he made. So we're told very strange ideas in the Talmud. We're told Adam was created circumcised on one hand. On the other hand, we're told is that Adam did a circumcision removal surgery, reversal surgery, to become uncircumcised. Now, what, what does that mean? What's the lesson for us? Now, to connect it all together, we find a third statement of the Talmud. The Talmud gives names for the Yetzirah, and it gives us 
seven different names for the eight Sarah. And one of them is uncircumcised. Perhaps what this means is like this. Adam was created with a soul, a soul dominant, and the Yetzirah is totally eradicated from within him. He was perfect, really. He was created perfect. His challenge was one of preservation. Maintain your perfection. Don't sin and thus make yourself imperfect by incorporating the Yetzirah within you. He was created circumcised, right? Circumcision is always about the, 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 the idea, the, the symbolism behind circumcision is the idea of revealing God's crown in the world. Someone who's perfect is someone who is actually a reflection of God's existence. A human reflection of God is a, is a human who's perfect, who has just a soul, just the godly influence, and not the bad influence of the Yetzirah. So Adam's created circumcised, created perfect with the Yetzirah, existing only without, and soul, a godly soul existing from within, and that's the only thing that was motivating him. He sins. By sinning, he brings the Yetzirah within him. He covers up the influence of God. Thus, he undoes his circumcision. He reverses it, so to speak. Now, God is not known in the world because the Yetzirah is totally enveloping the soul that was there prior. Now, we have a mitzvah, right? The first mitzvah we're told in the Torah that's given to the Jewish people is to do a circumcision. Our collective national mission is to undo what Adam did. To bind us with God once more by removing the Yetzirah that Adam brought to us by his circumcision reversal, quote-unquote, activity by incorporating the Yitzhak within him, and thus covering up his soul, we have to undo that, and that's what the Torah is really all about, about undoing our Yitzhak. What's more? Talmud also tells us that the Torah begins and ends with kindness. The first episode of the Torah is kindness, the last episode of the Torah is kindness as well. That's what the Talmud says. What does that imply, obviously? If the first episode of the Torah is kindness, and the last episode of the Torah is kindness, well, then the entire thing. If it starts and ends with these, this theme, then that's the central theme of the entirety of the book. That's what the Talmud says. Well, what are these two episodes of kindness? The first episode is right after the sin of Adam and Eve, the Almighty makes them leather jackets to cover themselves up. And the Torah ends with kindness where the Almighty buries Moses. Moses dies in the very last episode of the Torah, death of Moses. Who buried Moses? Only God. Only God went with Moses, so to speak, uh, to bury him. So the Torah starts off with kindness and ends with kindness. Now, my problem with this is that if you actually look at where the leather jackets show up, chapter 3, verse 21, Right after Adam and Eve sin, they get they, they recognize that they're naked. They try to hide. God says, oh, you ate, it looks like you guys ate from the tree. Gives them the maledictions. And then gives them the leather, leather garments. But wait a minute, don't we have chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the rest of chapter 3? There's a lot of kindness involved. Don't you think that the world is a kind world? Just the creation is, is kindness? All the animals, there's kindness everywhere. That's not, that's not the beginning of the Torah. It's the third chapter in verse 21, the end of the third chapter. That's 
a significant amount of content we've already covered in the Torah that exists before this episode, and somehow it's called the beginning of the Torah. I have a theory. I think this connects very nicely to everything we've said prior. The Torah is a book for humans. It's a book for humans to create, to make us better people. Now, what does it mean to make us better people? It means to get rid of the Yetzirah within us. In fact, the Talmud goes as far as saying, as the Torah is an antidote for the Yetzirah. Yetzirah is an illness. Torah is the spiritual antibiotics that heal us. Adam, before he sinned, didn't need Torah. He didn't need Torah because he had a soul that was perfect already. He had no Yetzirah. He voluntarily chose to change that. But as a product of that, now we need Torah. Now to undo this proverbial foreskin that Adam brought to us, the Yetzirah that he brought into our world, to undo that we need Torah. Essentially, the Torah should have started with Adam when he's been demoted from super Adam to regular Adam, he has the Yetzirah, that's the Torah that's relevant to us. We are humans in the post-sin Adam variety. And that's why we have Torah. Torah is there to bring us back to the way Adam was. So the real reason why we're told about the whole backstory is to tell us where the goal is, where the endgame is. It's Adam's backstory, it's humanity's backstory, and it's hopefully humanity's future as well. But the Torah in its form, in the way it's supposed to help improve us in our form, indeed starts after the sin. Thus, it's not so much of a stretch to say that the Torah really begins here. Because humans in our variety, where does that start? Right after the sin. First thing that happens, God gives us does kindness, and that's the last thing that happens at the end of the Torah. Now, I want to say a, a, a further point. The Torah begins, begins with Adam and ends with Moses, with Moshe. It starts off with Adam in the Garden of Eden, super Adam. He's got just a soul, no Yitzhah. He sins, and now we have Torah. And there's this continuum from Adam who reversed the progress, so to speak, who undid the purity of his soul, brought the impurity of the Yetzirah within, and then we meet Moshe. And Moshe is what ends the Torah. We have the Torah in the interim. The Torah is to bring us from Adam, well, Adam posts in, that is, imperfect Adam, to Moshe. Moshe is someone who independently, individually, was able to... Go back to Adam, pre-sin. Moshe actually did this. Thus the Torah starts with Adam, ends with Moshe, because that's the role of the Torah, to bring us from Adam imperfect to perfect Moshe. When we read about Moshe, we find that there's tremendous connections between Moshe in his perfected form and Adam pre-sin. Moshe was actually the one who actually did this, who rid himself of the Yetzirah, there was no influence of the Yetzirah, he just had a soul. He, quote-unquote, circumcised, so to speak. He, he did that. He reversed the sin of Adam, and he actually utilized the Torah to its goal, 
to perfection to bring us to the status of Adam priest. And by the way, you know the whole the whole picture of the Torah is now really spread out before us. We have Adam beforehand. He sins. He brings the Yitzharah. Now we, the Torah starts here. Let's let's try to undo that. The six thirteen mitzvahs and all the lessons contained within they are direct instructions to undo Adam's activity. And the last thing we learned is about Moshe and Moshe's death, because at his death, he was there. Very, very interesting. Okay, let's, uh, let's look at, this, at, at the punishment of this. A very interesting punishment. Um, what, what, what happened? So they, the, 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 the man and the woman sin, and the serpent assists it. And he tells, the Almighty tells the woman, I will increase your suffering... And your childbearing in pain, you shall bear children. To Adam, God says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate of the tree, accursed is the ground because of you. Through suffering shall you eat it of it all the days. Thorns shall sprout. You have to deal with weeds your whole life. You're, you're planting. Like why are these weeds growing out, making my life as a farmer so miserable? Um, you shall eat the herb of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread until you return to the ground from which you were taken. So the curse that Eve has is one of childbirth, primarily, and the curse of Adam is one of making a, li- uh, making a living. He's going to have to sweat really hard to make a living. You've got to work nine hours a day, ten hours a day to, make, to be able to pay for your family. It's crazy how much work we have to do to, to make it. And of course, we don't live in an agrarian society, but for the vast majority of the history of the world, if you wanted to eat, you had to be a farmer. If you want to be a farmer, you had to be miserable because you had to work all the time. Now, Adam and Eve chose to have a Yetzirah within them. They're punished by having pain in childbirth and by having a hard time making a living. What, what are those, how, what's the connection between those two? I have an idea here. I just want to look at it some, in line with what we've said previously. A Yetzirah is the capacity to reject God. That's what it is. Adam beforehand could not have rejected God because he had only had a soul within him. Now he has a Yetzirah. Yetzirah is a foreign God. It's an alternative. It's a way to live life without God. As a direct consequence, Adam's told, you're going to have to sweat really hard to make a living. Adam beforehand, he couldn't deny God. He couldn't. It's not possible for him to deny God. He couldn't see something that existed or was created or developed or something wonderful outside of the lens of God. The idea of nature, quote-unquote, as being something independent of God, that was not possible to Adam prior. God tells him, okay, now you want the opportunity to reject me? I'll give you that opportunity. What's well, going to be? You have to plant. You have to eat. What are you going to do? Now we're up really, really early. There's weeds. You've got to pull out the weeds. Where the weeds come from? Oh, just that's the way, that's the way it is, right? That's the way... All farms have weeds in them. Work really hard, sweating all the time. And you're really having to put in this effort to have food. What does that mean? Right? That's a buffer between man and God. 
man doesn't get the food directly from God. Man has to work, so to speak, the earth. That's going to be the nature, so to speak, that's going to dupe man into forgetting God. Thus, Adam asked for something, and he got it. He asked for separation from God, and God says, oh, you want separation? Here's your separation. By the way, what's going to happen? Someone's going to work really hard and plow and plant and eventually, hopefully, harvest. And he's going to walk around with pride. Look, these are my tomatoes. If you ever see someone with a tomato patch, right? There's no greater pride in the world than someone who has, you know, a hand, a basket full of green tomatoes. Like, that's the most prideful thing in the world. Why? Because I made this. Wait, wait, what? What do you do? You dropped some inedible seeds into inedible soil, and you dropped, in it, you dropped water, and, some, and this is your creation? How do you forget about God? This is just a miracle. To take something, an uh, 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 inedible pit, drop it into the ground, it starts decomposing and decaying and rotting. And somehow, magically, you have a tree with fruits that can uh, themselves produce more trees and more fruits, and somehow you're attributing that to yourself? What Adam asked for is exactly what he got. The punishment is directly in line with the decision that he made. He made, so he said, I want to be able to reject God. Oh, you want to be able to reject God? Okay, here's your opportunity. You have to sweat really hard working on the, uh, on the fields. And I think in a certain way we could say the same thing about, about having children. You know, we think that we do something to have children. Now, without getting too graphic, human, the human contribution to this is so minuscule, it's, it's unbelievable. It's like, and somehow we're convinced that we made children. How could you say it's not a miracle that an item that is so small you can't even see in the microscope, yet has within it all the DNA of not only the human that's going to be resulting from this activity, but also the human that can result from that human. It's possible for one, one activity, doesn't take so long, that's going to create a million people. Why? Because within that essence is incorporated their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids and all that, and this is us. And we reject God. We ignore God. I say, oh, what a, you know, what a, what a trooper, the woman, right? Of course, the woman's a trooper, of course. But somehow, like, she's the hero. I might get myself into trouble here. <laughs> Whatever. She, she's the hero of having the baby. What? This is a miracle from God that somehow this activity is going to bring about a new baby, a new life into the world. And yet... We misattribute it, and we, or we, we at least ignore God and in, 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 in his role in this, in this development. And what, furthermore, Adam did something good and bad. He did something good because he made our life more meaningful, but he did something bad because he brought, he brought obscurity and distortion to the world with the Yetzirah. I think that when we're told directly of the consequence about the idea of, of having new babies, I think that really demonstrates this conflict. How so? I say perhaps in no other area in life is there as drastic uh, a spectrum, a chasm, 
between greatness of the soul and despair and disillusion of the Yetzirah as in bringing new life to the world. How so? Someone, you know, someone looks at this world in the Yetzirah's lens. Yetzirah says, this world, this physical iteration of yourself is the end goal. That's the end goal. Don't think about the future. The goal is now. Okay. The goal is now. And sexual activity is recreational because it can produce a, uh, a, a drop of dopamine in this world. On one hand. And then there's the soul's argument. The soul is saying, yes, we're here, but we're here for the future, for the bigger picture. Not just for our current iteration, but to create more worlds, and more life, and more vitality. And thus, this area of their life is going to be about procreational, about creating a new world. So if you look at these two activities... On one hand, we have an activity that is entirely focused on this world and the pleasures of this world. On the other hand, we can have the same activity, the same life, so to speak, bring us new worlds and new... Someone did the calculation. If, you, uh, if someone has seven children, seven children might, might sound like a huge family. Historically, it wasn't such a big family. But seven children is not like, you don't get a reality TV show out of it, you know? It's a big family, but not huge. It's, we can imagine families of seven children. Now, if, if one family has seven children, and, the other fam- and, and each one of those seven children has seven children, and each one of the 49 grandchildren has seven children, within seven generations, there's almost a million descendants. Within eight generations, there's more than five million descendants. Now, how long is eight generations? Eight generations, so long. No, it's not so long. A generation on average is 27 years. Round it up. You know, we're talking about 200, 220 years. We're highlighting here a, a discrepancy here. On one hand, we have opportunity to create worlds and lo- like a million people. That's significant, can't we say? We can create that. The humanity allows us in the world that we have, we are existing in, we have the capacity to change the world. On the other hand, we have the people who say, Oh, well, I have my career, and uh, you know, I want to push off having kids. You know, I want to get everything else done, and then by the time they get ready to have kids, they got to go to deal with the IVF because it's too late because they're coming into it very late. And then you know, maybe they could, maybe they have kids. Maybe they'll say, "Ah, kids are not for me." When someone says that, they're saying, "I want my goal is not to create a whole." to change everything, to change the world. It's to, to live here right now. It's, it's, this is what it is. It's, I'm going to have 70 years. Hopefully, they won't be as miserable as they could be. And it'll be okay. It'll be all right. Then I'll die and that's it. What kind of legacy is that? What kind of, what kind of destiny is that? What are you doing? You are, you are totally under the reins of the Yetzirah. You're here 60, 70 years, maybe 90 with advancements in science and biotech, 100, 110, whatever it is. That's it. On the other hand, we have the power to create a legacy that's unimaginable. 
and it's not so hard for us to, to think about it. It's not so hard for us to imagine this. And here we're told, this is the epicenter. It's a challenge. It's painful. We're going to have kids. It's not going to be easy. But this is a focal point where the new conflict that Adam and Eve brought us, this is a direct result. We're going to be strung between the Yetzirah and our soul. Multiple influencers, both good and bad from within. And we have opportunity for greatness, to become great. Another time we have opportunity to become, uh, you know, uh, just the lackeys of our Yetzirah, just following it and just, and not really creating much of a legacy for ourselves. And that's indeed what we'll have, you know. And that's, that's unfortunate, but that's, that's the reality now that we live in. That's the world. The world is our opportunity to become whatever it is we set out to become. Okay, I want to quickly finish here with uh, the Cain and Abel story. Very, very strange story. Um, they're both bringing sacrifices. So initially, Cain brings the sacrifice. He doesn't take the best fruits, the best produce. He takes some of the second, second-rate quality produce. The mighty rejects it. And his brother Abel, or Hevel in Hebrew, he says, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to bring sacrifice as well. And he brings from his best of his flock, and the Almighty is pleased and accepts it. That's what we're told. And Cain is upset and envious, and he murders his brother. Now, if you read the verse critically, the verse says, on chapter 4, verse 8, that the Almighty comes over to uh, Cain and says to him, what's going on? Uh, where's your brother? And he says to him, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Very famous words. And on verse 10, God tells him, what do you do? The, the sound, the voice of the bloods of your brother are calling out to me from the ground. Now, when it says that he killed his brother, he killed his brother, but why does the Rashi asks, the Talmud asks, why does he call it the bloods, plural bloods, of his brother? Which, you know, you could have said more accurately, more precisely, say the blood of your brother is calling out to me from the ground. That would seem to be a more appropriate way of saying it. Rashi says two opinions. First opinion was that he stabbed him so many times that there was multiple uh, splotches of blood everywhere. That's one opinion. The next opinion is very interesting. He says that it's not just the blood of Abel that is calling out to God. It's all of Abel's descendants. Now the problem with that is that Abel didn't have any descendants because he was killed. So what does that mean? the potential descendants that he could have had, all that was killed by Cain. Now, so, Cain is a murderer. How many people did he kill? He killed one, but he also disallowed Cain to have a big family, and maybe Cain, after 200 years, would have had a million descendants. And all those people that could have existed, all now cannot exist because, Cain, because Abel is dead. I think this is very interesting in light of everything we said prior. 
When the Almighty looks at someone or even someone's actions, it doesn't look at the action in, an, in, in a vacuum, in isolation. Rather, it is projected what would have happened had this action not been done, both positive and negative. So when Cain kills Abel, he kills him, of course, that's terrible. It's fratricide and homicide, and it's really a bad thing to do. But the Almighty looks at it, well, what would have happened had this not happened? And everything, everything that could have resulted from the other side of the fork in the road, all that is attributed back to the initial act. And of course, to kill one person is terrible, to kill a million people is much worse. To kill, who knows, maybe it would have been a billion other people had Abel survived, and all that was stomped out by Cain. What's the lesson here? What, what is this relevant to the big picture of Torah? Perhaps we could say, now we're setting the arena of our life. We have a Yetzirah, we have a soul, we have conflict, and we have choices. The Almighty is telling us, just like we said, with this, there's 34 verses, there's 10 utterances, and that amplifies the world and thus the consequences of our actions. Perhaps we could say that this is another, another, another angle of this. Our actions are amplified because the Almighty looks at it not in a vacuum, but in a, you know, a, a world view that spans all of eternity. And that's both for good and for bad. What if someone does a mitzvah? And that mitzvah has a ripple effect, a butterfly effect, and that affects not just this particular act in isolation, but it goes on to inspire someone who goes on to inspire someone else. All that can be reattributed back I heard a story this week. A friend of mine is a rabbi in Columbus. He told me this story. Uh, he was telling that he, this was part of his high holiday sermon in his shul in Columbus. Apparently, Eli Wiesel was at a uh, function, he was doing a lecture in Manhattan, and afterwards there was a meet and greet, and there was this woman who said, who introduced herself and says, oh, my, my father sends regards. He wants to know if you remember, you remember him. What's the story? What's who is like? This girl has no idea. Like, this father says, oh, I know Eli Wiesel. Send him my regards. So he tells her, he says, your father never told you what happened? They were in the concentration camps together. And things were so devastating they couldn't handle it anymore. They were in a state of, of utter despair. And one of them got access to, uh, to rat poison. And there was a line of people, and they were just going to go, and just, they were just going to end it, end their misery. And this is one man, this girl's, this woman's father, who was, who was you know, standing there, and he says, I'm going to stop this. So he went there, he didn't stop, they didn't force people to stop, he started singing. He started singing a song, the song uh, to the words that are common in times of great, of great despair to sing, the idea of redemption, of Mashiach, the idea of that the Almighty is watching over us and is going to bring a happy end uh, to our story, to our national story. And he, he starts singing the song, and eventually, one by one, they got off the line and they all started singing along with him. And Eli Wiesel says that uh, 
I was on the line, and I was going to take the rat poison. I was going to. It was so de- It was you know. It was so de- it was so devastating. We we don't we don't want it. We couldn't handle another day of it. And because of your dad, because of his singing, I'm a, I'm here today, and everything that I've accomplished is a result of that. And I was thinking, like, this is a great example. Like, you know, if you're, we can't imagine what it's like, but if you're in the barracks in the concentration camp. And you see people wanting to commit suicide. You, you're inspired to try to help them. You start singing. You say, oh, I'll sing. What, what can I do? I'm not going to force them. I'll sing you. You start singing. And it's like, oh, okay, we're going to drop it. First of all, you don't know if those people are even going to last the rest of the week. Because it's not a, a place where people have very long uh, lifespans. But you save people's lives. What do you do? You sing. What do you do? You sing. You sing a song. Yeah, in isolation, that's what you did. But in God's world, you saved people's lives, and then they had kids, and then they had missions, and they did mitzvahs, and they taught the world lessons. All that is reattributed back to you. So I would imagine that this person who sang the song, he goes to heaven, and he says, oh, I want to do a, an assessment, an inventory of your mitzvahs. And he's going to see millions and millions of mitzvahs that he never did. Because there were mitzvahs done by people in Brazil, and people in, in France, and people in Israel, and people in California, all the people were inspired by Eli Wiesel. And they did mitzvahs as a result. All that is reattributed to one guy who sang a song in 1944. Once again, this augments our life. Our life and our actions are, matter so much more. So much more, A, because God created the world with ten utterances. It's a, it's, God made a big deal about it. It's, you know, he could have created with one. It's only there to increase our meaning and our, uh, and our opportunity. And our mitzvahs are, in God's view, are, we look at them to the nth degree. The Parsha ends with a degradation and a deterioration of mankind. And if you actually look at the way it's described, it's very much highlighted the the Yetzirah, the evil creation of people, was overwhelming. And God said, I'm not going to afford the people an endless uh, amount of, of patience. I give them 120 years. If they don't rectify their ways, I'm starting from scratch. I'm destroying the world. And in a, in a, in a world uh, that descended into sin, there's this one beacon that we meet at the end of the Parsha who was righteous, and that's Noah, and that's going to bring us into our next chapter. But I think we can, we can say that certainly the theme of the parsha is the idea of the Yetzirah. It's, it, it doesn't appear at the beginning with Adam. Adam brings it in. As a result of that, everything changes. His punishment is a result of the Yetzirah. Indeed, the Torah is a result of the Yetzirah, because if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have Torah. We have to be appreciative. If we like Torah, it's we have to thank Adam in a weird way because he made our life miserable but made our life also wonderful simultaneously. Adam was perfect. He decided to make himself imperfect. That brought about Torah. Hopefully the Torah will, you know, the Torah is going to bring us from Adam hopefully to Moses or at least as much as we can towards Moses and also the importance of every single action, every single thought, every single deed.